Welcome to the Gathering Place Church weekly podcast. We hope today's message ignites, equips, and challenges you to live out your Christian faith and to bring healing to a broken world. And how surrender will always take you further than ambition ever will. If we take it a step further, surrender will take you further than untethered ambition ever will. When you can cling to the cross, which is a sign of ambition, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, three things that define the gospel, Christ crucified, the resurrection, and as you get into it, you see the fullness as we've been talking of what the gospel is, that that's what we want to be ambitious for. That's what we want to be surrendered for. And when we sing, I will daily lift my hands, we are declaring that anything that ambition we think can bring us, it is void, it is empty, it is worthless outside of surrender in the person of Jesus. And in a world that says, get ambitious, climb ladders, go for it, push past your limits, we've always got to reel it back in and say, is that robbing my place of surrender? Am I forfeiting convictions and my forfeiting my worship in order to go and get it. Jesus, we want to be rightly ordered. We want to worship you in spirit and in truth. This Christmas season, as we marvel at the mystery that God put on skin in the person of Jesus through the incarnation, we thank you that you humbled yourself to the point of putting Yourself is a seed, is a baby in the Blessed Virgin Mary. Father, we thank you today that the path of surrender is one that is humility and one that is lowly. So Father, any pride, any ego that wants to rear its ugly head in our lives, we pray that at the cross, at the foot of the cross where we find ourselves that you reveal Jesus because it's in the scripture you teach us that he resists the proud, but he gives grace or elevates the humble. Father, we don't want to be resisted by you. We want to be elevated, but it comes to the point at the foot of the cross where you raise our head, you raise our identity, you elevate who we are in you, and you diminish the things that the enemy through pride wants to take. So Jesus, we look to you today. We are surrendered. We are expectant. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said, amen. Well, you can be seated. Good morning. Thankful you're here. I'm always thankful is I have a love-hate relationship with snow. I take care of a lot of the salt and shoveling along with my dad and other men. You help on Sundays, but during school hours, it's getting here at six something and salting and moving and doing. So when I see 50 degrees in water, it's a praise Jesus moment for me. And we made it all the way to Christmas break and we didn't have to crack open a bag of salt. So that's a good day. We'll see what the future holds, but um, pray that many of you as your kids are coming home with you this weekend and for the next two weeks, we're praying for you, Christmas break. I always laugh, too, at, at Thanksgiving break. The running joke is, 
do we really need three days for one meal to have all these kids in the house for three days? But it's, it's a joy to worship with you, to gather with you regularly, consistently, whenever you can make it. And today we're going to be, um, I want to teach you uh, in the latter end of the message today on the true Santa Claus, the true St. Nicholas, where this legend comes from. But before we get there and get you in the, the Christmas spirit, Christmas Eve falls on a Sunday. Next Sunday is Christmas Eve. Um, and it's always so important to, when you see these myths or you see these fables or you see these traditions in American culture of where did they come from and then how did they morph from there? Because in the conversation even of the church, there's the Christmas wars. I can tell you stories through the years of where people would come into church and they would see a Christmas tree on the stage and would freak out because that's pagan. And uh, should we believe in Santa Claus? Should we not, right? These are kind of the back, back um, door conversations that a lot of people have. And, and I always go to, well, let's find out where it came from and start from there and work our way forward. But before we get into that, as we're looking at the incarnation and the person of Jesus, the biggest point of the incarnation and heresies in the early church that would be fought of, was he fully God and fully man? Was he fully divine? Was he... Um, did he perfectly reveal the Father? But not only that, he even teaches us of what it perfectly means to be human. And when you look at, um, at the early church, these were always what they were fighting. Arianism would be the official coined um, uh, heresy of uh, diminishing the divinity of Christ, that he was just a prophet, he wasn't divine, he was not the son of God. Um, and we're actually gonna see today that St. Nicholas was the one who uh, fought in, against this uh, myth and against this um, deceit that God was not fully God and fully man. But as we get into this conversation, I want to go to John chapter 8, verse 48. We're going to look at 10 scriptures. And this is, we're going to jump in at the heat of a conversation between Jesus and the religious Jews, the Pharisees of his day. Because even in this conversation, even in Jesus in the present, um, they couldn't see that God was standing right in front of them in the person of Jesus. And what you're going to see in verse 48 as we read it, and I'll kind of start and stop today, you're going to see that these Jews in verse 48, it says, answered and said to him, do we not say rightly that you are Samaritan and have a demon? Could you imagine standing in front of Jesus, could you imagine staring at God himself in the flesh and accusing him of being possessed with a demon? I mean, that makes me shudder. And when you think of the teachers of the law there who should be rightly dividing the word of truth, can't see when God is standing in the flesh in front of him. This is a level of deception I don't think many of us could understand or even fathom with. We've opened kind of the conversation on this of even Israel and Jews. And um, if you've been watching the podcast or following along, you should be getting a very straight-lined understanding of this that takes out a lot of the guessing of what man-made traditions have been added into 
from big words like dispensationalism and amillennialism and premillennialism. And please, if you have questions along these topics, because many of these understandings are very new, or maybe you've not understood them, new to you, that's what the church has always believed, um, please email me, reach out to me so I can point you in the right direction. And that uh, even through all of this, I'm, I'm praying and just seeking the Lord if it's to be in our men's Bible study or to be a series in our church on how to rightly read your Bible. Because if you get Israel wrong, you kind of get it all wrong. And uh, we've got to understand that there is a right and wrong way to read Scripture. And when you kind of just jumble it all together and you take your feelings and what you think, you can read a lot of things into the Scripture not pull out of the scripture what it's supposed to mean. And you're supposed to change and wrestle with it, not change what you see. And we're going to see kind of a savage Jesus, if you want to say, comment today, that this baby Jesus figure that we can kind of get in our head, um, Jesus was not always cute and cuddly in his responses or in his remarks. And I'm thankful because it's the truth that sets you free. I don't care if I can't fully understand the truth or if I need some time to wrestle with the truth. Again, I need to change. The truth doesn't. And Jesus was blunt and direct and didn't come alongside the feelings and the have a lot of empathy at times with those that should know what they should be teaching. He cut right to the chase. And you're going to see today that it provoked them in a way where they began to bend down and pick up stones, wanting to throw it at Jesus. Again, could you imagine wanting to throw a stone at God? That's what we're going to see today. So they accused him of being a demon. And when you think of the deeper picture here, as broken and feeble people outside of the work of the Holy Spirit, we can say and do some pretty messed up stuff. We see the worst and the darkest of humanity revealed when it is void and absent of the work of the Spirit. And this is why it's so important that you cultivate a relationship with Jesus, and then you get to know the spirit that he lived by. You get to know the spirit that the Father and the Son at the ascension, the the Son sits at the right hand, and they sent the Holy Spirit in Pentecost to make us come alive. You're called to be an alive follower of Christ. You should not be dead. You should not be dormant. And what you got to understand is Jesus perfectly reveals Not just what it fully means to be God and what God looks like, but he reveals to us what it truly means to be human. And we spend this entire life, every day when we get up and we wake up and we lie our head, saying and asking the question, how can I be more like Jesus today? How can I get off the milk and the patty cake and get to the meat and the wrestling with truth? This is, as a pastor, I, I, I feel the great conundrum of how you pull people into the deeper things of God, into truth, into what the church stands bedrock on, the foundational truths, where most people can never get past the ABCs. But like we established last week, it is the ABCs, the stuff of the gospel that is a sledgehammer to the enemy's camp. But if we can't get the ABCs right, then you're just swinging at the air. And we've established that the gospel, when people said and asked the question, what must I do to be saved? It was a response to hearing the gospel. That the gospel is a declaration of victory over sin, death, and demons. 
And when you read the scriptures in this light, especially the gospels, you'll see in every arena, in every conversation, in every teaching, in every parable, in every miracle, Jesus is addressing just that. He's addressing sin, he's addressing death, and he is addressing the demonic. And when Jesus showed up in a lot of places, demons began to manifest themselves. Thank God, because deliverance is needed. And we have a generation that is so stooped in dysfunction, that is so stooped in insecurity, that is so attracted to convenience, that the church has such lost spiritual depth. We have no depth anymore. We settle for convenience, and at the result of settling for convenience, we lose depth. And you break it when pain enters, or when there's suffering, or when there's tribulation. That's the stuff that folds you because you have not gone deep with the Lord and gone deep with Jesus and his spirit. So they accuse him of a demon. And Jesus answered here, he says, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. In verse 50, and I do not seek my own glory and there is one who seeks and judges. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps, everyone say keeps. If anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. So Jesus is even speaking of the gospel here, is you want to be saved, you want to enter into glory and enter into this kingdom, you have to keep the word. And so this is even, as we kind of take a a chisel at easy believism, easy confession, I said a prayer once and now I have eternal security, is you'll see from the words of Jesus consistently, time and time again, when you read them closely and read them correctly, It is an active keeping of the word. Jesus says this here, anyone who keeps my word, he shall never see death. And in never seeing death, Jesus talks a lot about death. And as the church, we've got to get our head around of what death truly is. Because death at the earliest understanding of what would be proclaimed and taught to the church and to the believers is it's the faithful falling asleep. It's the faithful falling asleep. That you never die when you are in Christ. You go to sleep and you wake up with him. And then one day at the resurrection of the dead, you get a new body. But you have to understand that your soul uh, lives on forever. And when you're in Christ, it is simply falling asleep. We established last week, if you can get the fear of death settled in your life, then a thousand other fears that lay behind them get settled as well. What the church in the days ahead is entering into, you will see persecution. You will see uh, pressure applied in very simple ways and practical ways, but also very big ways. Will you turn that job down if it means you can no longer worship um, on Sundays, or if you can no longer, you can't be public at all about your faith, you gotta keep that between the four doors. When there's cost associated to following Jesus, and you're fearful of what man can take from you, this is where the two collide, and what, what is then my confession? Do I recant Christ, or do I step forward in boldness, even though they might want to pick the stone up, I'm still staying true to my faith. And I'm telling you, if you don't settle these things now, what is coming ahead, you will back down, you will fall, or you will fold. And this is why, again, 
it's not just keeping the word of God one time when you were 11 in a VBS. I praise God for that and that's where it starts. But you have to today, yesterday, and then tomorrow say, and when you get up and you daily lift your hand, say, I'm going to keep the word of God. And understanding the, the truest understanding of keep, this would be very similar to when the angel Gabriel visits Mary. And it says when the word was spoken that she would, uh, the Holy Spirit would overshadow her and she would bring forth Christ in her womb. It says, you can go and read it, that she kept this word close to her heart. So in keeping the word, it means you are treasuring it above all else. You are keeping it close to you. In other words, you are clinging to the word made flesh and his name is Jesus. So we've got to cling, we've got to stay close and we cannot let go. We've got to keep his word. So in getting this, we also, Jesus teaches time and time again, if you, you've got to have a, a solid biblical view of death. And when we think about death, a lot of us, we worry about the day of our death and, and the goal of all of us is that we, we breathe our last breath in faith. I think we would all hope for that and pray for that. But the reality of it is, at the day of our death, there's usually more fear and worry than there is faith. And so again, if we really truly declare and believe that he's the one who holds my breath, then the day we find that out is the day when our breath gets very slow and we're breathing very slowly and we don't know if what tomorrow will hold. Maybe there's an illness or there's a diagnosis and you've been given time. Maybe you've sat bedside as I have and you see people or see someone breathe their last breath. In those moments, you see very quickly that he is the one who holds our breath and he knows the day when we breathe our last breath. So in keeping the word, you get a confidence that he holds my breath and when he says it's time for my breath to leave, there is a rest that is in that and you live a lifestyle of rest in that. And so what I'm praying is that you settle in Christ, we grow up in Christ, and in the things that this world freaks out about, there's a peace that you can walk in and then you can go and minister the same peace. It's a good place to be. You even look at the early church, their hallmarks were known for caring for the sick and for burying the dead that this was the place that they hovered around and they communed around and made sure that they were very present in. And there's so many of us, and especially the world that is so afraid of leaving this body. There's popular pastors today, if I said his, his name, you'd know it. He's believing God to live to 120 years old. And taking a scripture and kind of running with it, and there's just so much in the faith camp, you can go so far into it where you, it sounds right and good, but it's rooted in a fear of leaving your body. When, if someone who was 90 plus asked for me to pray for them, I would turn back and say, I need you to pray for me, <laughs> right? Now don't get me wrong, well, I'll pray for them and long life and all of these things, but we've gotta have a reality that none of us live forever. We all have an appointed day for death, and we should not fear it, but we should live, we should um, define our life forward and then live it backwards. 
Think about what that day will look like and then build values, put the word of God, put the, the family you want, how you want to, the legacy you want, and then live that backwards and plug into uh, that point and don't fear it. You would think too that those that have lived in deception their whole life, this is even about the nature of sin. As someone who's lived in deception, maybe they started following Jesus and then they walked out of the faith and no longer served Jesus. You would think as time gets going and time goes on and where they get to the point of their death, that death would make them rethink and repent. But a lot of the times when sin progresses, it doesn't get less, it gets worse. Your heart gets more hardened, you get more bitter. And you would think that person who's been so bitter their whole life over certain things, maybe unforgiving, that at the point when they knew they were going to die would repent and confess. Usually it's the exact opposite because they've held on, they've been so deceived, they've done nothing wrong so they don't have anything to repent of. So this is where you've gotta understand that pride is never the way. That if you, what am I saying through all this? You've gotta get it right now. Get humble now so pride doesn't steal from you in the present and steal your eternity because it will. So Jesus, again, is saying, keep the word and you won't see death. This is a beautiful promise. Verse 52, it says, then the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. So they're not getting off this whole demon thing. Proverbs speaks of too, time and time again, that you can't correct a fool. And even if you do rebuke and correct a fool, most of the time they're not gonna repent. This is a prime example here. Jesus, the son of God, God himself rebuking, and they still don't take the rebuke. They still don't take the correction. So they say, no, you still have this demon. Abraham is dead and the prophets, and you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Verse 53 are you greater, they're asking, than our father Abraham, who is dead? And the prophets are dead. What do you make yourself out to be? Here, Jesus' answer again. And here's where it's Mike drop Jesus. Here's where he lays it on thick. Jesus answered, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it was glad. So Jesus, and this is what I love about Jesus, they're trying to put Jesus on trial. And do you see in the repetition of it, he is turning the whole thing and putting them on trial. And he's saying, you think you know him, but if you knew him, you would see that he is standing right in front of you, and you can't see it. And what you need to see in a world and in a church and in a culture where there is so many versions and morphs of Jesus being preached and taught, there's a progressive woke Jesus, there's a very fundamental law-based Jesus, you've got to discern and detect of where's the deception at, 
The way that you know the true Jesus is being preached is Jesus tells us right here, there is not a Jesus that you can know if it's not revealed by his word. Look what he says again, I know him and keep his word. You cannot know Jesus without knowing the word. And you can even use the word without knowing Jesus and use it incorrectly like the Pharisees are doing right there. So if you wanna know the real Jesus and rightfully divide of who Jesus is, you've got to know the word and you've got to read the word correctly and accordingly. You see what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is turning it all upside down and they can't even see it. And then he says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And this is where um, he's pulling into Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah, the Old Testament story where it's revealed to Abraham that a lamb is coming and he sends a ram in the thicket. And so he's pulling into Abraham. And in verse 57, it says, then the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. How have you seen Abraham? Again, they only can think and talk one dimensionally, one dimensionally here. And then here's where Jesus just gets the jaw dropper. Jesus says in verse 58, Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I mean, that's a good place to clap and to say amen because Jesus reveals right here, if you've ever doubted or if you've ever been in the conversation that Jesus is not God, Jesus right here says, most assuredly, I say to you, before he was, I am. He's declaring himself the same I am revealed at the burning bush as me. I mean, isn't this amazing that Jesus existed before the incarnation, put on skin, this is known as the pre-incarnate Christ, is that Jesus was still working and moving even before the cross and before the resurrection. So Jesus reveals that he is, that he always was. And when you begin to see through this, you can then rightfully read the scriptures through the lens of Jesus. If you wanna read the scriptures right, you need to put a lens on that have a pair of crosses on them and you'll see it correctly. Because without him, you can't understand it just right. So he's nailing the point to the heart here. And this is what I love about Jesus is he was direct. He nails the point to the heart. He doesn't quiver. He doesn't worry about what you're about to see next, that what he's claiming they would deem heretical and by the law would have right to stone him. Verse 59 says, then they took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus himself went out from the temple, going through the midst of them and so passed by. You see, these are passages of scripture you can just read over really quick and you can miss that Jesus just isn't cute little baby Jesus all the time. But Jesus doesn't pull a punch. Jesus isn't afraid to speak the truth at the result of stones being thrown. So you've got to see that this is the big picture of what Jesus is doing. This is the importance of Christmas and the incarnation and that Jesus is putting the Pharisees on trial. You even go, if you want to get deep into it, you go to the illegal trial that was held for Jesus at the passion, at the night before uh, his passion, when he's brought into the temple and he's in the middle of the night, which would be an illegal trial. He's already been bruised in the face. He's already tied by ropes. And they ask the question, are you the son of God? 
And Jesus does the same type of, of uh, uh, takes the same setting and he turns it back around and puts them on trial. And he begins pulling into the Old Testament that he would know, that they would know and understand and show where he is revealed and what he's pulling from. So Jesus, again, uh, you can, for reference, Daniel 7.10, in that illegal trial in the New Testament before his passion, he speaks to how the court was seated and how the books were open. And you can't rightfully open the books and crack the seal without seeing Jesus first. Again, they think that they have him on trial, but he puts them on trial. This takes us to really the main point here. We're most alive when we give ourselves away the most. When Jesus teaches us how to perfectly be human, many of us want to hurry and run to the miracles. Does that mean I can step out on water and start walking? Does that mean I'm, I'm behind on my bills or my taxes? I can pull a coin out of the fish like Jesus did and pay my, my bills. Those are kind of the places that we go. But when Abraham says here, that we looked for that day, we saw that day and we rejoiced, the day that he would see would be the day of his passion. Because the day that truly speaks to who you are is the day of your death. It's not when everything is going right, when everything is good, but it's all when it's pressed down, what comes out of you is who you truly are. This would be the day of Jesus' death. And so when it truly means to be like Jesus, yes, it's walking in power, Yes, it's walking in authority, but even more so as Jesus modeled and lived through the Beatitudes and really revealed and taught, it's through humility, it's through lowliness, it's through forgiveness, it's through serving, it's caring. It's a lot of the things that get easily run over because they are not applauded, they're not seen, but in the kingdom, that's the place that is applauded, that is seen, that is true spiritual success. Because you can have a prideful heart, a heart and a haughty eye and still bless somebody with a smile, but there's wickedness going on in the heart. And when you just see how Jesus picked his, his disciples, when you see how he modeled his life, it was, again, always through the lens of humility. It wasn't, let me go pick the best who could do the job the best. He did the exact opposite, right? When you see who he chose, it shows that if he can chose them to do that, he can choose me. So as we think of this and we're to emulate Jesus, he was the son of God, no ifs, ands, or buts, um, and that he wasn't afraid to pull the punch when necessary. This takes us then of what I want you to see of where we get and who this true Santa Claus is. So we're gonna get you in the Christmas spirit here. Are you ready? <laughs> so as you see through time and through generation and through traditions handed on, all of us have different traditions. All of us have things we hand down. And the thing that is, has been awful about tradition is tradition has been robbed by the word religion. Yeah. That a lot of times when we hear tradition, we hear religion, And we think that um, tradition bad and spontaneity and freedom good in church. 
But what you've got to understand is every spontaneous or free church has some tradition. It's just how you, how you do it. What's been handed down. Tradition literally means handed down. And time and time again, Paul speaks of preach, practice, and live what is handed down, what is tradition down. And there's man-made traditions clearly seen in Scripture, but then there's also godly traditions that we're to, to live by. I could pick up communion right now. This is a godly tradition that we're supposed to have in the church. Um, marriage, godly tradition. And when you start to try to redefine these traditions and put your own umph into it, it, you begin to walk on dangerous territory. And we hold these things so lightly anymore that it, if I can say this, and, and this just takes a lot to chew on at times, God cares what we think, God cares how we feel, but in regards to what you think about um, mysteries like this, your feelings, your thought, and what you care about does not matter. What I feel, what I think does not matter. And this is, again, the lens we go to the text with, eh, I don't like that, ah, I don't feel that, that doesn't feel right, and you just kind of brush it off. Yeah. And this is what will neuter and rob your spiritual growth every day of the week. You'll stay a baby, you'll stay offended, something is said, you jump out of this house, jump out of this church, you go down the road, you blow up that church with the same issues, the same problems. I can tell you I've seen it growing up in church my whole life. And there's no staying power with people anymore. There's no faithfulness, there's no loyalty. And again, it's not to me, I don't, I, I'm not saying to me, I'm saying to the truth. Because this is all just left to what traditions you wanna put to it or how you wanna read it not how it should be read. And I'm camping on this because this will save you a world of headache and trouble and pain when you can rightfully read it with the lens of Christ. And so in this Santa Claus, you can see now this present day jolly, red-suited, loves cookies and milk. And there's some, there's some of us today, we don't do Santa Claus in our house, right? We, we, we say very quickly, I don't think we have any kids in here. He's good. Um, you know, the day that you figure out about the reality of Santa Claus is a day of reckoning. Um, and even in a serious note, there's, there's testimonies and people will talk about that I struggled because I so believed in Santa that then when I was, had to reckon with my relationship with Jesus, was he fictitious just like the tooth fairy and just like Santa Claus? But now there is a real Santa Claus, and he was very real, but this modern American Santa Claus has just so morphed into and off what the real thing was. And so I grabbed some slides, and this will just kind of help get you in the Christmas spirit and to show you. But Allison, if you put up our first slide, Santa Claus comes from the Dutch name. Uh, Santa Claus is where we get that. And it stems from the saint, St. Nicholas of Mira. That's him pictured there. And he would be in the late 200s, early 300s. And he has, uh, if you wanna teach your kids the real Santa Claus, I think some of his life stories uh, will astound you that you've never heard before. And where a lot of, some of the modern parts of Santa Claus get pulled from, but wrongly misunderstood. So you would see, um, First and foremost, that December 6th, by the, the universal church, would declare uh, 
be, would be St. Nicholas Day. So it's a day you honor him, you look at his life. And uh, a saint simply means that they're a friend of God. You look at Pastor Joyce, maybe in our context, in our source. Uh, she would be someone who was a friend of God and walked with God, and a lot of us would want to emulate her life that she knew the Holy Spirit. And we sat under her teaching and, and teach us to, to be closer to Jesus and to walk with Jesus and to know the Spirit of God. Well, the same is with the saints of old, that they lived a life that showed closeness and friendship with God. And the thing I say a lot about saints, especially in a Protestant setting, um, is they're the grandparents you never knew you had in your family line and in your Christian walk. And St. Nicholas, Santa Claus is one of him, one of them. Uh, his story is pretty amazing. And uh, what he would be greatly commemorated for is uh, what's known as the slap heard around the world. If you put this picture up, you would see that uh, there was a great heresy we were talking about, Arianism, which talked of that God was not fully God and fully man. Well, St. Nicholas would be at the Council of Nicaea, which gives us the creed of our faith, that get, puts everything in line of what we believe, why we believe it, and what we confess as a church, what the church has confessed from the beginning to what we confess today. You can look it up, it's the, the Nicene Creed. So St. Nicholas would be at this meeting, this ecumenical meeting. You have gotta understand too, what'll make you scratch your head and puzzle, is it was not the scripture that was given to the church, it was the church that gave us the scripture. And when you understand that, you've gotta understand and put yourself in the mindset of the church. So a lot of the times people will say, St. Nicholas went into this meeting and he punched the heretic. But what you gotta see is it was a slap across the face of this heretic who was trying to bring this teaching in. And I put this up because a punch and a slap is quite different. A lot of us need a slap. I need a slap at times. I need some correction. I need some, uh, I need to be taught, you know, to get in line from disrespect of times when you show dishonor. And I think this part of, of the faith has been so weaned down and so diminished that you can't say anything tough and correction just never happens because we don't want to offend people. And people will try to say, St. Nicholas went in here and he punched this heretic, but that insinuates violence, assault, and cruelty. But it was a slap of a good priest, of a good bishop. St. Nicholas was a bishop in the church to show that there was correction needed, that there was disrespect being shown, and that dishonor would not be tolerated. Secondly, you would see not only uh, would this Santa Claus stand for truth, uh, but if you go to the next slide, you would see um, that St. Nicholas protected the innocents. In a world of, if you've watched Sound of Freedom, who's seen the movie Sound of Freedom? All right, if you haven't, encourage you to watch it. Um, in a world where we're seeing first and foremost that child trafficking is the largest form of slavery in the present world. Um, St. Nicholas would be known as a great protector of children and of those that were innocent. There was a case where three innocent children were brought before the emperor and f uh, documents and uh, accusations were falsified against these three children. The legend goes that St. Nicholas comes up and he grabs the sword of, those, of the um, persecutor that was going to take the head of these three innocent children. And as he miraculously grabs the sword, 
uh, it's said that he looks straight to the emperor. The emperor begins to weep and cry and repents of his sin, saying, I falsified um, the wrongdoing of these kids. And they were released and they were set free. Santa Claus loves kids and protects kids and keeps them and, and, and keeps their innocent, the true Santa Claus does. You tracking with me? So you would see a picture there. Um, another story would be is that um, St. Nicholas would be known, again, you can read in Acts 27, Paul speaks of the city of Myra. It would be a coastal city. And this city would be a port city that was uh, very friendly to sailors, to shipping, to commerce of that nature. And this would be the town that St. Nicholas presided over. And what you need to know about him too is he was generous, he gave everything he had, and he completely emptied himself as he was born into a very wealthy family. He emptied himself of all possessions and gave everything he had to those that had nothing. So he was a benefactor, he was very generous. And so he lived in this modern city and um, the legend goes that there was uh, a great storm that arose and there was these sailors that were caught at sea and they uh, lost control of their ship. And the legend goes that they miraculously, um, as though someone took the ship and got them to shore. And they had never seen this man, St. Nicholas, but as he was in constant prayer, specifically over his city, over his community, as a bishop would do, um, it was revealed to them when they all got to shore that that was the man that we saw that protected and saved our ship. So if you look at his life and you look of how Santa Claus in present day travels all around the world, this is kind of where they would pull this from and where it's morphed into, uh, you would see that he is um, a saint who protects over travel. You would even see, I think there's a picture in the International Space Station, um, there is uh, depictions and icons and pictures of St. Nicholas uh, that's in the International Space Station because of what uh, the legend shows of how he uh, prays for those in travel. Thirdly, you would see, and I think this is the most important, if you wanna know where you got your stockings from, why do you put stockings on your fireplace? Well, this legend is pretty neat. Again, you gotta remember St. Nicholas loves children and he cares for children and he protects kids, those that don't have anything. And the law of the land in the day of St. Nicholas was if you could not pay the dowry, which was the money needed uh, that the uh, bride's father had to pay for the wedding. Families that could not pay this dowry, um, their daughters, uh, uh, history would show that they would be sent into a life of promiscuity and prostitution. If they couldn't be married and if they come from a poor home, and they could not pay the money needed in order to get married. Statistics would show that in that day and time, they would go into a life of promiscuity and prostitution. So St. Nicholas, who was a man of great wealth, but also a man of great humility, uh, the legend would show that he would go in the middle of the night, take his own gold and money, and he would look into the window and see shoes drying by the fire and would toss the coins into the shoes. The father would then wake up and find this gold and this money sitting in the shoes or sitting in the sock or the stocking and would, would then take the gold, pay the dowry so his daughter could be married. And he would do this time and time again. Uh, the legend shows he had three daughters. And if men, if you have three daughters, we pray for you because that's an expensive wedding day. 
times three. Um, not much has changed. So we see just the generosity of where we get this Santa Claus figure from. It comes from St. Nicholas. And that he, uh, as you see, protected these three girls and many from a life of promiscuity and prostitution. So when you see the jolly old Santa Claus, there's a lot more behind it. Um, he, get, again, can get robbed by the Coca-Cola version um, or I think in 1930 when he's depicted. And what I want you to get through this and the Christmas wars that go on is it can be easy to take America, which is very commercialized around Christmas, and instead of saying the whole world's got it wrong about Christmas trees and Santa, let's peek in for a moment and thank God that um, all of commercialism can be Christmasized for 30 to 40 days. That maybe for once somebody doesn't, um, who only thinks about themselves, for once they actually buy a gift and are selfless for somebody else. And I think it's a window when you can see the truth of it, of where people can see Christ. And it resembles redemptive understandings where you can take the Christmas story to somebody who doesn't know and say, oh yeah, that actually belongs to the church. And here's the story. And it's a window and a point where you can share the gospel with someone of where Santa Claus came from. So did you learn something new there? Yes. All right, well, there's your, there's your history lesson. And uh, what I wanna do now is, is we close. Corey, if, if you would come and help me. Uh, as we prepare for communion, you can take the elements. No, oh, okay. No, it's fine, I'm good. Um, we won't put them on the spot like that. If you uh, take communion, and you can stand with me. Unless you want to play, you're, you're welcome to. Come on, Mike. I was going to text you anyway. <laughs> I was trying to get the text down. <laughs> Everybody clap for Mike. There you go. <laughs> Mike's done it so long, he can play in his sleep, I tell you. But as we prepare for communion, what I want you to focus on today is again this gospel that you have victory over sin, death, and demons. Um, and that the reason we have this tradition, and when you read Jesus' words himself, and again, this can be an eye opener for a lot of us based on what you've been taught, how you've been raised, is that Jesus himself never says it is a mere symbol, that there is life-giving power in the communion. Jesus himself says that this is my body, this is my blood. And if you wanna call it a symbol, if you look up in the Greek of what a symbol means, uh, it means when the natural and the supernatural come together. So if you wanna call it a symbol, I'll call it a symbol, because it's the natural and the supernatural coming together, is that Jesus gives his church this mystery because we need him. We need to keep him close. We need to keep his word. That it's not a mere symbol that we just throw around. Um, and this is a huge heart of mine as we move forward as a church, as we build the church, as we grow as a church, is that the church would feel and be respected and revered as the house of God. Not in some vain repetition, not in some main dead religion or tradition, 
but that God's house be different than a mall, than a Starbucks, than something that you just so flippantly go into and, and check out of. Again, the reason you see the mess we have today is because there is no spiritual depth in the church anymore. And so as we come into God's house with honor and respect, um, it is not just an outward posture, but it first has to start in here. And once it starts in here, it fleshes out and decisions you make, choices you make. And there is power when you honor the one who gave it all for you. You've heard it said before, the way I would describe it to a child is if the president of the United States or the highest form of authority that you, that you would be around, even if you didn't like them or agree with them, um, there would still be an honor and a respect that would be given because of the position. That's the closest example I can get to that. Even more so with Jesus as the King of Kings, as the Lord of Lords, how often do we flippantly throw his name around? How often do we flippantly not honor him where he seeks and where he teaches us to honor him? Honor is a lost art. We don't honor anyone anymore. We criticize. And the thing I love about Jesus is he was not afraid of the critics. And he teaches how to deal with critics. Again, you don't necessarily punch them at first. You first slap them, St. Nicholas, because they need correction. They need rebuke. And if you can put yourself not in the place of, I'm the one who needs to slap first, but maybe I'm the one who needs to be slapped. That's the position of humility first. And like we've talked about, there's times and places in our life where we need Jesus to touch those areas, where we're rebellious, we don't listen, we read into what we wanna see. And as Jesus gives us his body today, it's the perpetual reminder that we have hope, that his body was broken so that you can have healing in him. That this is the point and the part of your walk with God in partaking of this mystery where you can find healing, where you can find that which you lack is always found in Jesus. It's never Jesus plus anything else. It's in Jesus. If you need healing, don't go try to find a prayer. If you need healing, go to Jesus. Now you can get to him through prayer, but many times we look for a magical formula or uh, we take something maybe new agey because it feels good, but you've gotta go straight to Jesus who is healing personified. He is your healer. He's the one who will touch you. And it's a mystery but understand that there is power when we partake of communion together. This is what the church has always believed and what's always been taught. If you close your eyes for a moment and just prepare your heart, I wanna encourage you that the Jesus we serve is not a Jesus of convenience because if it's always convenient, then there's no pain. And to be a Christian means you have to die spiritually in order to live spiritually. Death can be painful. It's a pruning. 
It's a shedding away of your old man. I want you just to check your heart for a moment and say, Holy Spirit, where have I valued convenience over being truly Christian, over truly following you? Because as you reflect on the Christ child in the manger, God in Christ greatly inconvenienced himself to bring us hope, to bring us life. So Jesus, we never want allow to allow convenience to rob us of the fullness, of the hope, of the joy, of the abundant life you have for us. We want to embrace the painful parts, the lonely parts, the hard parts, because you are in them all and can be found in them all. Let us run to Jesus, not run from him. We take his body, we break it. It says his body was broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We remember you today, Jesus. You can take the body. As we take the cup today, Jesus, this covenant is where your people, is where your bride, is where chosen by you, as we follow you, as we walk with you. I pray anyone here today who is in a point of having to make decisions for their life, for their family, they're waffling, maybe they're trying not to be double-minded, trying to get to the perfect will of God. We thank you that the perfect will of God is found in Christ, is found in Jesus. As we sing that name, Yeshua, this morning, God, it focuses, us, it focuses us and it recenters us to what is important, what is ultimately valued, and where we find all wisdom, all discernment against deception and double-mindedness. So Jesus, I pray you speak clearly to your people today and this week as they seek your voice and seek your face. You tell us to take that this is your blood to do this in remembrance of you. We take the cup in Jesus' name. If you repeat this after me, say, Holy Spirit, make me more like Jesus. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. We pray it encouraged, uplifted, and challenged you to become more like Christ. We would love to hear from you. You can email your prayer request to prayer at gpcky.com. Loving our podcast? Take a moment and like and subscribe on our YouTube channel to stay up to date with all of our new content. Thanks for listening.